I'm woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore, sings Helen Reddy. The song released in 1972 became the anthem of the women's liberation movement. We hear its allusion to violence along with our guest today, Dolores D. Frankliasco, believe empowering women is a good idea. Hello, folks. Welcome to Solution to Balance. You are listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you can join us again as we talk with our guest today, Dolores D. Pregliasco. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solution to Balance, a broadcast of and sponsored by Forward Video. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. Views are expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsabalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Dolores D. Pregliasco is a graduate of the Brandeis School of Law in 1977. She was elected in 2016 through 2018 as president of the League of Women Voters of Louisville. Dolores Pregliasco was senior partner at Pregliasco, Stahl, Boone, Donny, Banks, and Mudd, PLLC, now retired. She is uh, an attorney and a practicing mediator. She was first elected president of the League of Women Voters of Louisville and is now the first vice president of the board of directors of the Kentucky League of Women Voters, also chair of the league's redistricting committee, and she is also a mediator. So welcome, Dee Pregliasco. Welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you for having me. Dee, what led you to become a, an attorney, a prosecutor, and, and how did you develop a passion for the League of Women Voters? Well, my undergraduate and master's studies were all in history, particularly American history, and also a lot about um, the history of the United States after the Civil War. And so I have always been interested in voting issues in relation to the civil rights movement, especially. Especially. And through that interest and that work, particularly as I was winding down my practice, I actually had joined the board of the local league, you know, before I became president, I knew that this was a way I could use my skills, both from my study of history, interest in all of that interest in voting issues, and my legal background to work as a volunteer with the League of Women Voters, who I've always supported, even when I was not a member, you know, a long time ago. So that's how I got to it. I think the second thing to tell you about that would be the League of Women Voters is nonpartisan. We don't support candidates or parties, but we do support issues, our, our policies. And it doesn't matter to us who proposes those policies or those, you know, who's behind those issues. If it fits with us and what we believe and what we stand for and what we have studied and then taken a position on, then it doesn't matter to us who that is. We will speak out. So that's what I want you to know, especially. And then also, even though it has the name, the League of Women Voters, we are open to all people age 16 and above. And I emphasize that all people. And we have a substantial number of men who are members and we have men on both the local board as well as the Kentucky board. And there are men on the national board. And if you join the League of Women Voters, for example, in Louisville, you're going to automatically be a member of the state league and you'll automatically be a member of the national league. But specifically for Kentucky, you can go on our uh, website, lwvky.org or you can and you can do the same for the national you can go to lwvus.org and then Louisville also has its own website the same thing lwvl and 
you can find, I'll tell you, reams of information about policies and positions and things that we're working on. So I hope that gives you sort of a little introduction as to how I got involved. Okay, so Dee Pregliasco, tell us a little bit of the history of the League of Women Voters. How to get started? What's the purpose? Okay, as you might know, or some people would know, last year, 2020 was the 100th anniversary of the National League of Women Voters, and it was also the 100th anniversary of the League of Women Voters of Louisville. Obviously, this organization was in its infancy prior to 1920 when the the amendment giving women the right to vote was passed by all the states, in other words, ratified by the states. But that movement was 70 years uh, plus in the making. So the seed for having an organization such as the League of Women Voters had been going on for a long time. But specifically after the amendment was ratified, giving women the right to vote, and this was all women, even though there's a bad history associated with that, because we know that Black women were because of what had been going on all over the country, but particularly in the South, did did not really get the right to vote as they should have. What, What was realized is that women who had not had the experience of voting, except in some local elections and school board elections, even in Kentucky and various parts of the country, They needed to be, we felt, or they felt, and we still do, because one of our goals is to educate voters. So the idea was that this organization would help women, and then ultimately men, obviously, but help people to educate them about voting and voting issues. Uh, We have some wonderful stories about people who, you know, after 1920, they weren't sure what to do. You know, where do we go? How do we do this? What do we do? What do we tell people? How do we sign up to vote? How do we register? Because they had never had any experience. So since 1920, what the League has been doing is continuing to educate themselves and voters on all the issues, whatever they might be. So for example, both statewide and locally, in addition to what the National does, we will have forums, we will have meetings. In other words, letting voters know these are issues out there. Here's what these people say. Here's what these people say. We want you to be educated as a voter and as a citizen. But the women have sometimes been misunderstood or discounted and more often hidden role in American politics. What what are some ways that women have helped shape politics and government and American political landscape? Well, I think probably two ways, two ways primarily. One, obviously, would be the fact that they can vote and therefore can choose candidates and can choose people who are elected for office. And I think we as citizens often forget that the people who are elected and have off these offices, whether it be national or state or local. What they do affects our daily lives. So women being involved with their interests, which are both, you know, they're interested in international things, they're interested in national things, local things, and then obviously what affects them and their families, that's part Uh, part of their role. But I think the other part of it is that I'm not sure without women, and even before they voted, they were part of those progressive groups in the early part of the 20th century that pushed for, for example, child labor laws, wage laws, all kinds of laws that affected people's daily lives. and, And particularly, you know, whether they could even live and have a life. So they did that before they got to vote. And then after with the, with the right to vote, you will see that a lot of what some people call them women's issues, we actually like to call them human issues or citizens issues because they affect men, women and children 
all over the country, all over the world. And so the push for those kinds of things has had its most emphasis, including, as you know, such examples of, because you talk about violence, think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, a tremendous organization that has changed the landscape in regards to how we view drunk driving. And as a former prosecutor, I can tell you when I first was a prosecutor, that didn't happen. You know, people weren't charged with anything seriously for drunk driving. But one of the first cases that I tried for murder involved domestic violence. And again, you know, we had not paid attention to that, any any of us. And what I was able to do with that case, with the help of the police, is actually dis- dismiss the case. It was, so it was not a murder case and the person was not charged with anything because she had been a victim of domestic violence and her children had been threatened. And when this, this abusive spouse was killed by her, all of the circumstances indicated that she should not be prosecuted. So those were sea changes. And I do will tell you that women were behind that. And women were behind the change in rape laws. You know, it used to be that you had to have lots and lots of witnesses, you know, people to corroborate the fact that you were raped. And that's not the case now. And those were things that were pushed by women. And there's a whole litany of things, but that's that's how we've affected the circumstances in the United States, voting and then pushing, obviously, policies and, and child care uh, and preschool are some of the big ones right now. So the League of Women Voters looks at many issues that concern women. So Dee, let's tackle the issue concerning the possible change in the Selective Service Act because that bill is now before the U.S. Congress. Congress could do away with the Selective Service altogether, or they could pass a law that would require women to register for the Selective Service. As part of the National Defense Authorization Act for Physical 2021, the U.S. Congress could vote to require women to register for the Selective Service. Currently, only men between the age of 18 and 26 are required to register for the Selective Service. But in February 2019, a decision the U.S. District Court from the Southern District of Texas granted a summary judgment declaring that male-only registration requirement was unconstitutional. The plaintiff in the case, the National Coalition for Men and Two Men of Registration Age, argued that requiring only men to register constitutes sex discrimination in violation of the Fifth Amendment Equal Rights Protection Clause. The case is now in the Supreme Court. So if the Supreme Court declares the current Selective Service Act unconstitutional because it does not include women, then Congress will have two choices. They can either require women to register for Selective Service or they can eliminate the Selective Service Act altogether. There are many pros and cons in terms of requiring women to register for the Selective Service. What's your opinion? What's what's the reason for your, your opinion on the Selective Service and the registration of women? Well, as we discussed, for purposes of the League, the League does not have a position on that at this time. What the League does before it initiates a position and supports certain policies, it does a study, and that study is done all over the country in local leagues, state leagues, and, and through the National League, and then tries to come to consensus. Yes, we are going to support A, or we're going to support B, are going to be against A, be against B. So the League of Women Voters, nationally, state, and local, has not done that study. As a person, as an individual, I, Dee Pregliasco, I support what I would call you know, selective service. I call it national service. I think men and women in the ages that you talked about should take part in national service. And that would not just be military service, but could be all kinds of service. Uh, You know, we can look to the past with the conservation corps that there was. We have Teach America now. In other words, all of the kinds of things 
that young people could help us do in our country to make not only a better country in the sense of the service that they would give to local communities, state communities, and nationally, but what that would do also for them as citizens and understanding that we were all communities and that we're all in this together. So that's my very personal opposition. The fact that you would talk about equity and equal rights, it would not be too far off that I don't think that the league might ultimately support something like that. But again, the league has not taken that kind of position. This is this is my position. As I told you previously, my son is in the military and has women in his brigade before. And in fact, one of the first women that has graduated from ranger school was actually in his brigade that he took to Afghanistan a couple of years ago. So we're really talking about, you know, we need people in all those kinds of services. And when I say all people, that's what I mean, all people with no discrimination. And certainly that's where I am personally. And again, from an equity, equal rights standpoint, the league might certainly support that in the future. They just have not done that study, but certainly this is something that we probably ought to pay attention to. If there are people who are unfamiliar with the selective or national service, it means to require a person to be a member of the military at the whim of the government, right? For right now. Yeah, for right now. Requiring women then to register for the national service is one of those little known issues because it is not made uh, the mainline news media, but it's still an important issue, not only yes. women. Currently, men who refuse to register for the selective service are denied the rights to federal scholarship money, as well as the very possibility of facing penalties or fines and imprisonment. Because college tuition has become so expensive, the right to acquire federal scholarship is a big deal. If there becomes a time when the draft is reinstated, selective service or national service registration becomes a, a conscription mechanism a mandatory government directive. Under those penalties, the requirement to register for the selective service becomes a critical issue. At this point, we wonder if women who support the requirement for women to register for the selective service understand the consequences of not registering. What are your thoughts? Well, I think as with any issue, and again, this is where I love the fact that the League of Women Voters educate people. So I think what we're talking about here is that people, including women especially, who might be subjected to that, would need to, to know all of that. You know, what are the penalties? I personally don't see that Congress would actually do the selective service military option without national service. I think there will be, uh, you know, just what I see, there might be some pushback on that. However, if it were national service and you had other options beside the military, in other words, you can choose. I mean, right now we have an all-volunteer Army and Navy and all the armed forces is all-voluntary. So even though men have to register, joining is all, is voluntary. And then, of course, we have always had the conscientious objectors part of that. If you can prove to the government that, that for example, if there were an actual draft where they were going to come take you. I remember when I was in undergraduate school, there was a, a some sort of crisis and somebody that was a friend of mine and actually that a friend and I was dating uh, because of this crisis, he was in the reserves and he had to leave school. And I can remember thinking, why do you have to leave school? But of course, because that's the way it, it's set up. So there, you're right. There are lots of things that need to be discussed. And 
I think before Congress does anything, regardless of what the Supreme Court might do, before Congress does anything, I presume that they're going to have enough hearings that they're going to hear from people all over the country. And even though the league doesn't have a position on that, you know, that is something that we could still think about having some of our own uh, programs about. And we have a lot of a lot of programs, and that might be something that we would have a program about. And a program, of course, is just to inform people what, you know, what are the issues, wh- whether we take a stand on something or not. Yeah, yeah, it is a complex issue. So the COPINC, the National Organization of Women, also opposed requiring women to register for the selective service and, in fact, support eliminating the selective service. You disagree with both of these organizations on this issue. Yet, like the League of Women Voters, you oppose war. How do you resolve that dichotomy? As I told you, and when I responded to your questions, I don't see that there's a paradox or a a dichotomy there. We support using all of the prior means of diplomacy, collaboration with other countries, whatever possible before war to resolve things. In other words, for us, diplomacy is the real key. I pointed out to you the example because of 9-11 and what had happened and because we knew that al-Qaeda was having a safe harbor in Afghanistan, our push to go after them in Afghanistan, I do not see that as as a, a problem personally, again, a problem because of what had to be done and had to be done uh, uh, quickly. Um, however, the war in Iraq was a whole different proposition. And, and we didn't use diplom- uh, you know, diplomatic means and collaboration, et cetera. And that's, you know, these are controversies. Afghanistan and Iraq are huge controversies that are still going on because, you know, now the issue is, do we bring everybody home? What happens if we waste all that time and money and the same for Iraq? So I don't, you know, a lot of issues are complex to the point that they're not just a yes and no. And so if you read our position on that, it it talks about all the means to use. And obviously they're not military, but I don't think that any of us or our position would keep us from supporting, maybe not as strongly as some people might, uh, but supporting some action. And I think that was the case after 9-11. And obviously, uh, it was the case uh, with World War II. You know, we could argue for hours about are there such things as good wars? I mean, war is a horrible thing. And my son, who's been deployed 11 or 12 times, you know, he, uh, it's his job because he's he's a all volunteer and been in the army at 30 years. But, you know, he's not going to praise war at, at all. And I, I don't hear many of our real military leaders praise war. It's, it's is a form, uh, the military is a form of security. And unfortunately, we know that there are, are problems in the world that might need uh, the use of military. Hopefully not. I've been a pacifist for a long time, but sometimes it might be necessary. Okay. Uh, the Another argument in uh, support of requiring women to register for the selective service is a, is a claim that the military draft should be reestablished. Some argue that a military draft results in anti-war protest. In other words, protest pressures on political leadership to end a war or decide not to engage in a war. But U.S. history demonstrates there can be a different result of protest. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, each of the wars that the United States have been has been involved in uh, has resulted in some level of protest, some greater than other. Obviously, for I presume looking at you all, I'm going to make some assumptions of me too. Obviously, the biggest one for us is Vietnam. And actually, of the good war, World War II, which had the most support, still had people who were against it. World War I, which was 
of course, misnamed at first to be the, the war to end all wars, had a huge amount of anti-war sentiment and protest. And I personally believe that we did a lot of terrible things to German Americans and Italian Americans because of that war and, and, and protests and passed some what I would say were terrible acts. And even with the good war of World War II, what we did to the Japanese is just reprehensible. And as a child and as a student of history in high school, and even uh, in college, not till I went to graduate school, did I really understand, I think, the full import of what we had done to the, to the Japanese. And while there have been apologies to them and some reparations, you know, I hope that that never happens again. But of course, now, because of the pandemic, we're seeing this anti-Asian sort of feeling to arise and causing all kinds of issues. So, you know, all of the, let's put it this way, I think wars of any kind, even this war against the pandemic, our military wars sometimes bring out, brings out both the best of us, but also the worst of us as to what, you know, as to what we do. So the fact that a war could bring about protests, I think that that means we are a democracy. Not everybody's going to agree to everything that the government, which, and, and, and let's face it, the government is us because we elect those people. I think we forget that, you know, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be protests. That's just going to happen. And I think that's good. I think there are protests for anything that the government does is okay with me because we don't all have to agree. Obviously, I want them to be peaceful protests. Part of voting and paying attention to, to who you vote for, that's critical, who you vote for. You know, we're, we're going to talk about the census and redistricting in a minute. But what I think people tend to forget is who you vote for, again, affects your life, your daily life, your family, all of us. And in the cases we're going to discuss with redistricting, it whatever happens lasts for 10 years, and we are not going to be able to change it for 10 years. So if this history is an indication that draft is not likely to result in, in massive anti-war demonstrations, what, what are your thoughts on the ways that the League might combat or, so to speak, delegitimize the draft? If I understand your question, you're actually whether we would delegitimize it? Yes. Well, first, again, the league does not have a position on it. So not until this, a study and a consensus would there be a position anyway, okay? And I personally don't think that any kind of protest necessarily delegitimizes anything that the government might do. It doesn't automatically, you know, delegitimize uh, what's happening. So again, because the league doesn't have a position, I don't see them doing anything at the moment. And again, we don't know what is Congress going to do. That's, you know, in some ways we're talking about the possibilities and we don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to do away with selective service completely? I personally doubt that they will, just from what I see happening. Will they change it to national service, which I personally would support? You know, I have no idea about that. It's it's hard to tell. You know, Congress itself has been passing a lot of laws, but we know that a lot of laws have languished in the Senate. And so we don't have a lot of legislation in the, and certainly not in that area to look at. So you would say that if reestablishing or completely recognizing the selective service, as long as it involves more than just the military, that that's a position you would take? Personally, yes. So well, what would the benefit of reestablishing the draft 
how would that impact us and, and the, the country, our women and, uh, and, and men? Well, I think one of the things we've missed talking about is this. Up until the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, the number of our elected officials who had served in the military had continued to dwindle. And there was some discussion and some thought that part of the march to quickly go to war uh, was affected by the fact that the people that were making the decision had no experience with war or they had no children that were, you know, part of the military. Now, since what we've seen is since the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, we have an increasing number of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans who have been running for office. And I see that for all of the negatives you might associate with war and with Afghanistan and Iraq, I see that as a positive. Now, that doesn't mean there's not disagreements. There are some of those war veterans who have run for office and been elected that I agree with and some that I don't agree with, some that I I consider to be real warmongers instead of people who understand, you know, the complexity of war and how it affects us and the problems of war. So I think that that's something that we need to pay attention to also. And I will tell you, among my friends and colleagues and relatives, with two exceptions, my son is the only person that any of those people know who has any connection to the military. And that is indicative of our society in in that not just elected officials, but we are, so many people are so removed from this all-volunteer, you know, army or armed services. And, and so I think that affects the conversation. I think that affects how we look at things. And so I think over the next, certainly with this generation of, of veterans who've been elected to office, especially, and the veterans of those who are no longer in the army or Navy or wherever, and how they have affected society and what's happened to them. And of course, you know, this relates to the VA and health and, you know, suicide. And, and I mean, and it, it affects everything. So, so that, that all needs to be discussed. That all needs to be discussed too. Yeah. So what you're saying is uh, it's a better balance to have some military and political positions as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is some disagreement here, but what we're concerned about here at Solutions of Balance is that the fact that very few people know about the Defense Authorization Act and how it might affect their lives because it's not been broadcast on mainline news. And we are also worried that maybe Congress might slip something under the under the carpet that, that people are not aware of in a backroom situation. So we're the reason why we, we went into the discussion on that issue, uh, uh, selective service and including women, is hopefully to inform people that this bill is now before Congress and uh, they need to pay attention to it. Yes, absolutely. And I would agree with that. Okay, so let's change directions here, Dee Pregliasco. The Louisville Courier-Journal published an op-ed in their April 3rd, 2021 community forum entitled, quote, to end gerrymandering, GOP and Dems could cooperate, end quote. The op-ed was penned by Fran Wagner, the president of the League of Women Voters, Kentucky. Fran Wagner claims that here in Kentucky, both the Democratic and the Republican parties have gerrymandered state and legislative districts to favor their political parties. First, explain the basis of for redrawing legislative political district boundaries and why gerrymandering is such a, an undemocratic process. Of course. So keep this in mind. I mentioned this earlier. 
when we have the census every 10 years, uh, that means that the district lines for Congress as well as state legislative districts. So in Kentucky, that's our state senators and our state representatives. And for example, in Louisville, that means the Metro Council districts. And it can also mean the school districts that are drawn because it's based upon population. So the census counts all the people in the United States. Now, unfortunately for this census, 2020, there've been all kinds of delays and the pandemic of course has affected that. So what happens is this, there are requirements both through the our constitution, U.S. constitution, as well as our Kentucky constitution, that once that information is shared by the Census Bureau with the state, that those lines are drawn, are redrawn, you might say, because we know that there are population shifts that happen over a 10-year period. And let me sort of digress for a moment and, and share this with you. The census is collecting information all throughout the 10 years, even though there are these final numbers every 10 years in those even numbers like 2010, 2020. What we know in Kentucky is we're pretty sure that we haven't lost enough population that we will lose a congressional seat. If you've lived in Kentucky long enough, you know that we used to have seven congressional representatives. Now we only have six. We have two senators because every state has two senators, but we only have six representatives. So we, we're pretty sure we're going to uh, keep those six representative seats. But what we do, do know is the I-75 corridor in Kentucky and the I-65 corridor in Kentucky show increases in population. Eastern Kentucky and most of Western Kentucky are showing, and then obviously some patches here and there, but they're showing decreases with some exception. Uh, Bowling Green has been growing slightly, and so has Callaway County, where Murray State University is. Uh, Northern Kentucky also some. Louisville is sort of in the same general category with maybe a little, a little loss. So what that means is all of the lines for both the congressional representatives as well as our state senators and our state representatives are going to have to be redrawn based upon those population numbers. Right now, the end of this month, supposedly the last information we had is the sort of big population numbers are going to come out. You know, Kentucky has these many uh, people, and so therefore we're going to have to divide all those people into six congressional districts. But the specific detailed numbers, for example, example, for all the counties and cities, et cetera, all of that is not due to come out until the end of September. In Kentucky, our legislature, which is the state Senate and the state House of Representatives, they draw those lines every 10 years. The league has taken a position since 2007, and we call this fair maps. We've taken a position that that drawing of those lines should be open, transparent, with public input. And that's been our push, especially uh, probably the last four or five years. None of us, including the league, were probably paying attention as we should have in the past. And when we weren't paying attention, that's when the gerrymandering takes place. Gerrymandering. What, a lot of people know that but they don't know what how that is that related to redistricting. Elbridge Jerry was a Massachusetts politician who drew a district that looked like a salamander. And so it became, that's how it became called gerrymandering. 
Kentucky's legislature was controlled by the Democrats for close to 40 years. In 2010, because of the change in voting, the Republicans gained control of the state Senate and the Democrats still controlled the House. So part of what we say to people is all over the country, including Kentucky, there there have been bad acts by both parties. It just happened to be that the Democrats controlled longer than the Republicans in Kentucky. Now the Republicans control both the House of Rep- you know, the representatives, uh, the state House representatives House, as well as the state Senate. So the last time in 2010, when we had the census, the Kentucky House controlled by the Democrats drew those lines and the Kentucky Senate's lines were drawn by the Republicans. Both sides felt that the other side did not do a good job, a right job or a constitutional job. And so there was a lawsuit. Part of why we're pushing for an open process and a transparent process with public hearings is we don't want to have a lawsuit. In other words, we want it done right. In other words, be fair and right and open the first time around because we don't, again, don't want to have a lawsuit. So though what happened before, because there was a lawsuit. And so all that was not settled until 2012. We know that the first time around, they only took less than 10 days to draw those lines. They put them out there and said, you have to vote on them without people seeing the maps ahead of time. And even after the case threw every, the, the court threw everything out, and they had to redo it. They did it the same uh, the same way. We want whatever maps they draw, whatever maps might be proposed. And we've actually are have a computer program to do some possible maps. We want those to be published ahead of time so that people can talk about them and look at them and and say yes, this works for our community or it doesn't work for our community. Because the Republicans are are in control now, uh, they're going to do both of them. We just don't want it done in a dark room in the basement of the Capitol without any input from the public. And yes, we didn't pay attention before, but we are now. Uh, and whoever draws them can be, you know, what I say can be the good guys and do it right, so we don't have any lawsuits, and so people can, you know, can say, hey, we've been we've been heard. And and let me give you one example locally and one example out the state. The city of Hopkinsville in Christian. County is a very compact city, but the way the lines were drawn, they have three representatives. It's it's not a huge city, but they have three representatives. So their house could be in one district, their school or work could be in another district, their children could go to school in another district, they could work in another district. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever and should not have been done that way. In Jefferson County, we have a senator, Senator Higdon, who has worked with the league. I'm not saying he's a bad person, but he represents a part of the small part of Jefferson County and that district, Senate district goes all the way down to Casey County. Okay. So it's sort of this ribbon that just includes a little bit of Jefferson County. And if you look at a map in in Eastern Kentucky, there are all these uh, ribbons or necklaces of beads of these, you know, these um, counties that are strung together. And of course, that makes it harder for people to contact their legislator, to travel to their legislators' meetings for, for that legislator to do that. Sometimes the legislator lives in the county that's the furthest away from all the others, and it's just a terrible situation. But there might be some counties that it works for those people and 
they should have a say and say, yes, this these lines that you've proposed uh, work for us. So that's sort of the basics. I, I know I've said a lot and you'll have some more questions. So as you know, I'm very enthusiastic about this. I can talk about this for five minutes or hours, but I think that that, that will give you something to start with with questions. And keep in mind, whatever happens, whether they do it with openness or not, it lasts for 10 years. And we don't want it to be done just to help one party or the other, you know, to go into a precinct and say, do you want this street or should I take this street? You know, thinking about the opposition, thinking about how we can keep the opposition from running. And of course, what it's done is it's meant that the primaries are the most important uh, race, not the general election. And it shouldn't be that way. Voters should choose their representatives, not the representatives choosing the voters. D, isn't one of the arguments that the redistricting is based on population and making sure that each district has the same amount of uh, people in it? Is that one of the arguments? Well, I mean, that's what has to be done. So, for example, the state, for purposes of the congressional representatives, if we have, let's just use, a, if we have 4 million people in Kentucky, those districts, based upon where people live, have to be drawn to include the closest possible number, okay, that you can get to that they make all of those six districts equal. And that's true for the state representatives and true for state senators. So for example, in Jefferson County, because we have huge swaths of land, whether it be the airport in UPS and the Fair and Exposition Center, Ford or GE, you know, where there are very few people, obviously drawing those lines is a little more complicated. And there's some constitutional requirements. They have to be equal. They should be compact. In other words, they shouldn't be drawn out in these long, you know, long lines like the gerrymandering, okay? Also in Kentucky, one of the things that happens is that once a county is divided, and based upon our population, there are going to be a lot of counties that are divided, there's no rule that keeps them from dividing it up as many times as they want to. So, for example, in Jefferson County, we have 18 state representatives. Half of those representatives represent Jefferson County and other counties. So that's a huge division, okay? And so, there, you know, there's nothing to prevent that so they can just chop them up as many uh, as many times as they as they want. Uh, yeah. So yes, the equal population. L- let me say this: if you and your listeners go to the League of Women Voters of Kentucky's website, we have a whole section on redistricting, and you can actually go to a county and see what the possible population trends are, and it also breaks it down into the various districts, which gives you information about population. Yeah, my district uh, forty one goes all the way from the west end along the river to the east end. Yes, that's (laughs) mine too. Right, right. Now, keep this in mind. Communities of interest, which include racial minorities, have to be under the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965, have to be guaranteed that they will have the right to elect a representative of their choice. And so that's part of where that long district of ours, 41, comes in. We, with our maptitude uh, technology, computer technology, have drawn some possible maps using the old numbers. We don't have the new numbers yet either. And we can share those with other people. And we think there's a better way to do just some of those particular maps. 
gaps that you're that you're talking about. And again, we want input. In other words, the people should be able to say, hey, this doesn't work for us because of this, or this works for us because of that. What we recommended, let me tell you what we had, had supported. In last year's legislature, uh, January of 2020, we actually introduced a bill that would set up an advisory commission and have public hearings in at least 12 places all over the state so that the legislature could gain that information. That was in January of 2020. Obviously, the uh, pandemic came, which kind of changed the landscape for everybody. That bill got nowhere. I mean, they could have pa- they would have had time to pass it. And even if they, they could have had the hearings, even if they'd done it remotely, but that didn't happen. So then we got it filed again for this year, 2020, and also got a joint resolution that we tried to get a hearing on and passed. And the joint resolution would have basically said the same thing. We are going to try to have public hearings on this issue. So one of the things I think I saw, Jim, that you had put in there was, does this have to be done by June 12th? No, this does not have to be done by June 12th because we don't have all the, nobody has all the information yet. The, the advisory commission would be a group of citizens. Yes. And they make recommendations to legislators yes. as to how the districts should be drawn. But right. the legislators have the final say in how those districts yes. are drawn. Yes. Well, what we provided for is they would make recommendations. If the legislature said no, they would come back. But then this, when they when they went back the second time, they would still have the final say because that's what our constitution says. To change that to an independent commission, which about 15, 16, 17 states have, we would it would take a constitutional amendment. And take get, we can only put so many constitutional amendments on the ballot at any one time. And so our goal was to at least temporarily try to have an advisory commission uh, and do this. And these people would be appointed by the legislature, but for example, they couldn't be related to a legislator. They couldn't, you know, couldn't work for a legislator. They couldn't be a candidate. In other words, really the the role would be to to get people who were knowledgeable about the state, but then also people, just ordinary citizens could apply. So, and we want people, for example, there are experts at all the universities who have computer programs and know about demographics and know about, you know, where people live all those kinds of expertise, they could draw maps and say, hey, what about this map? So that's what we've done. We've done possible maps. And as soon as we get the numbers, we're going to do possible maps again, and uh, hopefully to get the legislature to consider them. Okay. So you're saying the deadline for redrawing those districts is not early June. No. So there is time, if not to establish an advisory committee, at least to get maps drawn by professors and legal women voters to legislatures to consider. Right. Right. Or anybody, there are actually some free programs on the internet that, you know, somebody who's really good at that could could wind up and saying, hey, what about, you know, what about this? And we are continuing, let me tell you one of, what a part of our effort, which started last year and continuing this year and will until the maps are redrawn is we are doing PowerPoint presentations on all of these issues to groups all over the state, uh, university groups, Kiwanis groups, Rotary groups, chambers of commerce, uh, religious groups, churches, anybody. In fact, you know, if any of your listeners have groups that they would like for us to present all of this information to, we'll be glad to do it. We had our first in-person one since the pandemic last uh, this Tuesday in Frankfurt to this uh, group of state retirees. Uh, and so we've started doing that now that people are vaccinated, but we can still do it. Got uh, three that are coming up in the next two weeks that are all virtual. Uh, and part of, and this is 
is part of our educational effort, and this is what we would be doing, educating people about, okay, this is why we need to pay attention, okay? Whatever happens is going to last for 10 years, and so we need to pay attention to this and have an open, transparent process. And we have been and continue and will continue through the rest of the year to reach out to legislators uh, to talk about this. So can people request those educational sessions through the website? They can do it through their website, but you can give them my telephone number and uh, email, which Jim has, and they can call me direct or they can do it by contacting the league through the website. Mm -hmm. Either one. I and my colleague, uh, Cindy Heine in Lexington, we're basically in charge of, of scheduling these, but any of us can do it. Okay, so we hope our listeners will will pay attention to this very critical issue of redistricting and redrawing those boundaries. Along those lines, the American Civil Liberties Union denounces what they call voter suppression in Michigan, Texas, Georgia, and Arkansas. League of Women Voters, along with the Georgia NAACP, Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, Georgia Latino Community Development Fund, Common Cause, and the Lower Muskegee Creek Tribe filed a lawsuit against the state of Georgia to prevent enforcing Senate Bill 202, an ominous voter suppression bill signed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. That happened two weeks ago. So, Dee, how serious are these voter suppression laws? And can you give us an example of how these laws will suppress voters as well as those that are being targeted by the voter suppression laws? Yes, and I'll give you some background even here in Kentucky. But here's what I'd say to you. It, It seems to me that all of these laws are bottom line trying to keep people from voting. And our position is if you've got policies and positions, you need to get those out to everybody and try to get as many voters to vote for your, you know, your positions, your your issues as possible. But yet all of these things to me are to me and I think to the league are geared toward keeping people from voting. And we know that all of them, everyone that I've read about, are all pretty much to trying to keep people of color and poorer people from voting also. So let me tell you what we did in Kentucky. And certainly we support what the league is doing in Georgia. First off, there was, you know, we know that there's not fraud. That's just sort of a the numbers of cases of fraud. And actually, some of them are even just mistakes, like the poor woman in Texas who voted in the wrong precinct and wound up spending some time in jail. And she didn't know she was at the wrong precinct and they let her vote. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's unbelievable. Talking about the Trump-Biden presidential election when you said there was no voter fraud. Yes, right. I, I say no. I, there's nothing that, that I've read seen anything that we know from all of the officials, et cetera, including the ones in Georgia, is it was not a fraudulent election. But let me talk about Kentucky for a moment. So last year, we knew that the governor and the secretary of state, they set out special rules for purposes because of the pandemic for the primary. We supported all of those, which was no excuse, for example, no excuse absentee ballot. I voted that way. Nobody was vaccinated last year. So that was, you know, that should have been done we supported that. We had a concern that for purpose, and, and, and particularly as the, as the pandemic was going on, that we couldn't wait until after the primary to see if they were going to make some special rules to have for the general election. So prior to the primary, the League of Women Voters of Kentucky, uh, the ACLU, the Urban League, and the NAACP filed a lawsuit because we wanted to make sure that what was done in the spring for the primary was going to be done for the fall. So that again, there would not be what we would consider to be voter suppression, a way to keep people from voting. And, you know, sometimes voting can be 
complicated as far as the process. Not that you know don't know who you want to vote for, but just the actual action and process. As it turns out, I, and I'm pretty sure we made the Secretary of State mad, but we, we just didn't know, are they going to work out something? As it turns out, the governor and the Secretary of State didn't do everything that we would have liked, but they did enough that we dismissed our lawsuit. And I think that people know, and we were actually hailed from all over the country, that our process was very good. It helped people. There wasn't voter suppression. So in that sense, we were lucky. Okay. And uh, the new voter bill passed by the legislature this this session in, in January and February of twenty of this year. It didn't have everything in it that we wanted, but we're okay satisfied and we're nobody's filed any lawsuits again. At, at least we're not involved. And I don't know I don't have any information that anybody else has. We would have liked to have had more days of early voting, more examples of no excuse uh, absentee voting, but overall, you know, we, we can live with it. The voter uh, ID with a photo or a photo ID that was passed the year before. And so that's, you know, that's a done deal. But then this gets us to, and I know one of your further questions is going to be about uh, former felons getting their rights restored. And so I can talk about, talk about that too. You know, I think that what scares us the most is, and, and this, this may sound like, oh, really? Are you really that scared? Yes, because we, we, so many of us lived through the Jim Crow laws that finally were tackled in the 60s with and with the Voting Rights Act. But we know that there have still been, especially for people of color, uh, situations in all of these various states to try to make it harder for those people to vote. My example that I really hate is Alabama because, for example, what they did, and it wasn't just last year, you know, people would get their, their license, their driver's license at a license bureau. And under the Motor Voter Bill, which is a national bill, you could register to vote when you went and got your driver's license. Alabama closed a huge number, and I want to say 60, but I'm not sure of that, uh, numbers of those licensing bureaus, and they were in predominantly Black majority counties, of which uh, Alabama has a lot. All right, what, what what does that tell you? I mean, to me, that's I mean, they're not even being subtle about it. One of the things that we know from the case from North Carolina that ultimately was decided by the Supreme Court and said, we're not going to get involved in gerrymandering, which we actually think was a wrong decision based upon the precedence that there had been. Uh, in other words, now, if there's you have a gerrymandering issue, you've got to go to your state court. You can't go to the Supreme Court. But in that case, Ruscio versus Common Cause in North Carolina, as the district court judge said, with precision, with precision as though they had a drill, what they had done when they drew those districts was to go into precincts. And this affected all of the communities of color in and poor communities in North Carolina, separate them so they would not have any power. I mean, again, they were not subtle about it. So I see all of these laws and these attempts that are going on now they're not subtle. They're just as straightforward as they can be. We want to keep people from voting. Yeah, uh, especially poor people and African-American people. Yes. Right, Dee, is there at the present time a federal bill that would address and possibly even reduce the effects of voter suppression laws? And uh, what's the status? Yes, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. As you might know, the uh, House of Representatives has passed, I, I believe it's House Bill 1, I want to say. Anyway, and actually a couple of other bills. There was a bill passed even last year, but none of those bills have gotten hearings in the Senate. That would take care of some of these issues. Part of the issue is our Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, 
Constitution doesn't talk about voting, okay? In other words, that's been left up to the states all these many years. So there is some pushback of, do we want to federalize voting on the local level? I mean, it is federalized for purposes of federal elections, but not for state elections. So that's the rub there. We do want to address that issue of voter challenges and uh, that one of voter disenfranchisement. So currently there's there's about 312,000 former felons who have not been allowed to vote uh, as a result of the current Kentucky law. Curry Journal recently published an op-ed by Nikki Rothwell. That was in April this year. The title is, I'm Living Proof of the Power of Redemption Through Restored Rights. Rothwell mm-hmm. tells a, a dramatic story of cycling in out of jail as a result of substance abuse. This was before uh, being released on a five-year probation plan, okay? In the op-ed, Rothwell explained, and this is a quote, having my voting rights restored, like graduating from college, created a drive within me to advocate for more substantive change. Those voting rights she is writing about were restored by a commutation that was an order by Governor Bashir. Uh, by the Kentucky state legislator has not passed a law that will allow felons who have served their debt to society, a law that would allow restoration of the former felons, their voting rights. What is the purpose of disenfranchising those who have completed their legal sentence and have done what society has asked them to do, required them to do? Where does the, the League of Women Voters stand on the issue of disenfranchisement? Our position is all of those people should have their voting rights automatically restored once they have served their time. So here's what has happened. Uh, We put out a report first in uh, 2017. We've updated it, and I'll be glad to get you all a copy of it. And so here's what we've been doing. Not only have we been reporting on it, and we've done polling on it, Kentuckians support that these people should have their rights uh, restored. Kentucky is only one of three states that automatically, through our Constitution, takes away those voting rights from these people. So we have been pushing a constitutional amendment. It's actually been pushed by a lot of uh, larger legislators, but it is not going to make it on the ballot, uh, which is next year for 2022. And what, what that would do would be autom- do an automatic. What Governor Rashir did in December of 2019 is issue an executive order. And it, it's, it doesn't mean that every felon, because it leaves out those who've been convicted of treason, which are not uh, probably not any, are some violent crimes or crimes against children they are not part of that, but that they can have once their sentence, which like in Florida includes any fines paid or any restitution, they can have their rights restored. So we've had a campaign going on since way last year uh, because this happened uh, again in December of 2019. We have been involved in all kinds of activities with all kinds of other groups, the NAACP and the Urban League and religious groups, all kinds of civic organizations to get the word out to those people and they can go online, actually, and find out if they are eligible. And we also, there is a a group that's been working on helping them getting voter IDs too, because it doesn't matter that their rights are restored. They have still have to register to vote and have the, the proper documents. So we have all kinds of information. We've been working, as I said, with all these groups to make sure that these people know whoever they are. And they're from all over the state, though there's a larger number from Jefferson County and Fayette County. Here's one of the issues you, you want to say to people who might be against this. You know, ultimately, these people, if they, you know, 
they could vote for you. They could vote for your party. So we've been pushing that. We're still working on it. And we've had press releases and working with, as I said, all kinds of groups. There's just, there's just no reason. If you have served what we said you should serve and done what you should do, then there's no reason. What's really interesting is two points. In some states, even if you're a convicted felon, you can vote. And even in Kentucky, if you are in jail, but you haven't been convicted, you can be registered. Maybe you already are, but you can be registered and can vote. We were going to work on that in Jefferson County last year until the pandemic started. We had already had the Louisville League had some preliminary plans of how we could go in and find out who needed to be registered, uh, who was eligible to be registered, and then to help them. They have to obviously file an absentee ballot, and um, but the pandemic just sort of squashed all of that. So a- absolutely, that is a huge issue for the league nationally, the state, locally, and for all kinds, uh, all kinds of groups. And the polling that we have done in Kentucky is over seventy percent of people in Kentucky support that, that that people with those convictions should have their rights automatically restored. So, uh, sort of like the bail project, which you may have had some discussions about. One of the things that we're investigating is the bail project or another group able to help people to make sure that their fines are paid. Because right now, as far as what I understand, in Kentucky, you still have to have paid whatever fine. If it was restitution, you would have had to have paid your restitution. Okay, so. Do you- Real quick here, because we're out of time. What other issues is the League of Women Voters concerned about? But big, big issues that we have. Well, yeah, we all uh, we have uh, positions on the environment. We have positions on the criminal justice system. We have all kinds of positions on housing, on uh, children's issues. Uh, you name it, we do. Uh, and of course, racial issues. In fact, when I became president in 2016, uh, there had been a lot of killings that summer. And that August, we had a big racial justice forum to start talking about all these issues and have had a continuing committee to talk about that. So all of those, again, and you can go on the website to see what all of our positions are. You name it, though, except for the selective service, which we've talked about, chill, all kinds of children's issues, criminal justice issues, environmental issues, housing issues health issues, all of those. And we regularly have programs on those. And um, unfortunately, they used to be in person, but they've been online recently. And recently, the Louisville League has put on several programs involving land reform and zoning in, in Louisville. And again, educating voters. So we're not just about registering voters and getting them out to the polls. We're all about educating them because that means they're good citizens. Voters should be citizens who know what's going on. So ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. The Vice President of the League of Women Voters, Kentucky, has been our guest today. We want to thank Dee Pregliasco. It has been our pleasure for us today to have, have you join us on Solution to Violence. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions Files program featuring Deke Pergoasco will be placed in our WFMP archives Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. To visit our archives, go to Forward Radio website at forwardradio.org. Choose Program Archives, then the Solutions to Violence program that features Dee Pergoasco. For more information and a scheduling of programming that will surprise and delight you, maybe even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Thanks for joining us in our exploration of solutions to violence.